Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I think what you see from his relationship with his mother is he kind of saw how she was treated and how he was treated and and that kind of just takes the bloom off of any high-flung notions he might have at a very young age. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeff Smock and he spent his career studying the life of Alexander Hamilton. He believes that Hamilton's ideology was formed at a young age and he's our guest tonight. I'm Brady Kreitzer and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On tonight's episode, we're going to talk about one of the real it men of the American Revolution in the 21st century, none other than Mr. Broadway himself, Alexander Hamilton. But tonight, our guest, Jeff Smock, is going to reveal a different sort of Alexander Hamilton to us. Not the poised and outspoken uh, writer and editorialist and soldier and diplomat and politician and future secretary of the treasury that, of course, we all have come to know and love over the last 250 years, but a younger Alexander Hamilton, specifically an Alexander Hamilton whose life is Uh, really in a lot of ways one loss after another, Uh, starting from the relationship with his mother and things falling apart with his family and work and uh, a man who learns hard lessons uh, along the way. One of the great things I love about the article we're going to talk about tonight uh, and the historian we spoke to, Jeff Smock, is he lays out just how much, I suppose, Hamilton was... Uh, the product of his youth. And we we don't think about this enough in the popular narrative or the popular sense. So often we think of these figures from the founding generation or the revolutionary generation as finished products in a sense. Uh, That is to say that the people that they are, the people they've always been, and the ideas that they have, most importantly, have always been theirs. Uh, But that's not true for any of us. That is absolutely untrue for Uh, human beings as a whole. It's part of our human nature to learn and grow. And Alexander Hamilton is one of those really important characters uh, that really, I think, in his formative years as a young man, gained the perspective and really developed the foundation for the ideology that would not just come to dominate his adult life, but because of his prominence, uh, become a major ideological uh, perspective of, of really millions of Americans moving forward. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jeff Smock. Jeff Smock, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Tell us about your background. Well, I uh, have been fascinated with early American history since we had a unit on the American Revolution in fifth grade. Uh, My mom bought me a 
uh, history CD-ROM game that I kind of played around with and then started asking for history books and found myself getting deeper and deeper into the topic. And so uh, I have a bachelor's in history, and uh, I'm now teaching middle school uh, U.S. history. And this is my fourth year just outside of Seattle, Washington. And I've been uh, writing for the, contributing for the journal for about three years now. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, well, the glib answer would be that I was assigned Alexander Hamilton for my fifth grade biography report. Um, but I would say that I really got interested in Alexander Hamilton doing some research on Thomas Jefferson, actually, uh, for a project I was working on in, in college. And the more I read about Jefferson and kind of looked at him and kind of saw some of the uh, contradictions between Jefferson's ideas and Jefferson's actions, the more I kind of found myself drawn to looking at Alexander Hamilton who uh, had a very different background and a very different outlook on, on the world and, and America and the future that America had in front of it. And so uh, that caused me to kind of branch off and kind of look at both figures simultaneously. We know so much about his later life. Could you tell us about Alexander Hamilton's younger years? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of one tragic tale after the other. He's, his mom is uh, someone who's run away from her first husband. And she meets a young man from Scotland who is technically a nobleman there, but he's a younger son, so he isn't going to inherit much. And so he decides, James Hamilton's his name, and he decides he's going to come to the Caribbean, which for Europeans at this time is kind of the Wild West, and he's going to search for his fortune. Uh, and he's a very suave guy, and, and Rachel, his Alexander Hamilton's mother, is looking uh, for a place to go, and they kind of move in together, and they enter into a common-law marriage. They refer to themselves as Mr. and Mrs. Hamilton, even though she's still married, and uh, Alex Alexander is the second son, uh, and when he is just a couple, five or six years old, uh, his father abandons his mom and his older brother, uh, and his mom is basically left then to fend for herself and the family, and while this is happening, Alexander is hes an avid reader and he's collecting all the books he can with what resources that are available to him in the in the Caribbean. Uh, and shortly after his dad leaves him, then he gets very sick with the fever that his mother had gotten a week or two before. And they find themselves sharing their one bed in their apartment you know, on the second floor of a building on the island of St. Croix. And his mother dies next to him and he has to go to the funeral in clothes that are provided to him by the charity of some ministers and other people in the community. And then his mother's husband, who's still uh, her first husband, comes in and presses a claim on what's left of Rachel's estate. And so all of what she has and owns goes to her son from the previous marriage. And Alexander and his brother then move in with his uh, cousin, who commits suicide. And then his uncle, who dies shortly thereafter, and by this time, he's forced to be a clerk in a local merchant house that his mom had traded with when she was running her general store. And so he's really just left on his own. And fortunately for him, he's a very intelligent young boy. He's got a really good talent for not only figures and clerking, but also writing. And that gains the attention of some wealthier patrons around him, and they uh, subscribed to send him to King's College in New York City, and and the rest is kind of history. Hamilton is famously from the island of St. Croix. Uh, what was life like for him in the British Caribbean in the 18th century? Yeah, uh, 
St. Croix in the Caribbean at this time are, is, is a really big study in contrast. You have an idyllic setting. Uh, it's The temperature is great. There's lots you can grow year-round. Uh, but it's St. Croix and many of the islands around there are basically large labor camps that uh, all the property is owned by a select few. Uh, white gold or sugar is the main commodity. And, and so to farm and, and pull all that white gold out, you need a lot of slave labor. So the white population on St. Croix and the other islands is uh, vastly outnumbered by the slave population. And there's really no middle class either. It's the people in the top who have everything and then the poor whites and the slaves below them. And so it's kind of this very desperate, almost uh, tawdry. It's just a, it's a harsh environment. People who come from Europe describe it in uh, not very, not very favorable terms to say the least. They remark on the excess and the kind of the cruelty and the barbarity uh, that exists at this time. And so by the time that Alexander Hamilton leaves St. Croix, he really never looks back. He never speaks of St. Croix or the Caribbean in any favorable terms, and he certainly never expresses a desire to go back and visit. You write a lot about how Hamilton's relationship with his mother will shape his worldview. A little bit of Sigmund Freud there. Uh, could you summarize her life and her death? Yeah, so she... She grows up, or she's born on the island of Nevis uh, to an, a plantation owner herself. Uh, so she comes from some money, actually, herself. And five of her six siblings uh, die uh, before they reach majority. And then when her father dies, that leaves her as the uh, main inheritor. So she takes her inheritance, which uh, was pretty significant at the time, and moves with her mother uh, to St. Croix. And there she meets a man by the name of Peter Lavian, who is kind of a ne'er-do-well who's looking to get rich quick and he sees in Rachel not just a wife but as a fortune to be made and so they get married at the pressure of Rachel's mother and it doesn't take long for Peter Lavian to squander her fortune spend all of her money they have a kid together uh, but she's pretty unhappy from the start according to Alexander Hamilton years later and so she leaves him and at that time uh, Danish law allowed a husband to sue his wife basically in court for infidelity. And so she was actually thrown into prison in a fort on the island. And she stayed there for a few months, basically reduced to eating salt cod and some porridge. And so when she finally is released, she escapes. And that's when she meets Alexander Hamilton's uh, father, James Hamilton, who in a few short years after having a couple of kids with her, uh, abandons her as well. And she is forced basically into uh, opening a warehouse in a house that's owned by her uh, brother. And she is very resourceful. She's trades, she sells, and she kind of makes a pretty decent living for Alexander and his older brother, James. And so, in fact, by the time that she dies, she has a, an estate that has uh, several slaves and no debt. And so she basically overcomes the odds and and makes the best that she can out of harsh situations. And that's a, it's a trait that Alexander himself has to uh, use from his mother when, when she passes and he's the one that's left uh, by himself as well. How did the loss of his mother, and especially the treatment of his mother, uh, affect Hamilton in later years? Yeah, he, he doesn't write a whole lot, at least from what I've discovered of his mother. He describes her in pretty favorable terms. Uh, Hamilton is someone who in his adult life never really pretends to have any high-flung notions of human nature. He never speaks of 
the rights of man and, and what humans are possible, uh, infinite progress, scientific progress and that stuff in terms that, that a lot of the other revolutionaries speak in, especially Jefferson. He's a very realistic kind of understanding that there's a dark side to human nature and, and greed and vanity are, are two of the principal uh, motivations that people have. And so a lot of what he favors and supports in terms of public policy and, and government structures kind of take into account that uh, realistic or gritty notion of, of human nature and what, what moves people to do things. And I think a lot of that goes back to seeing his father abandon his mother and seeing the things that his mother had to do and then seeing the vindictiveness that his mother had to go through when her husband comes and sues her in court and accuses her of whoring with everyone, quote-unquote, in court documents when he's trying to get a divorce from her. And so I, I think what you see from his relationship with his mother is he kind of saw how she was treated and how he was treated, and, and that kind of just takes the bloom off of any high-flung notions he might have at a very young age. In so many ways, the early emerging America, Hamilton and Jefferson are viewed as these sort of uh, polemics, these sort of diametric opposites. Uh, how did their individual views of the future of America differ? Yeah, they both they both come from very different upbringings. Jefferson's first memory is being handed up on a pillow into a carriage by a slave. He is someone who's who comes from money, who is grows up in a plantation house that is not only full of slaves who are waiting on him hand and foot, but he has access to every possible book that he'd want. Uh, and he moves around in the Tidewater elite of the time of Virginia, so it's the upper class of society. He has a college education, goes to law school. He studies under some of the most respected mentors and, and academic minds like George Wythe uh, and Jonathan Smalls in, in Virginia and the colonies at that time. And so a lot of how Jefferson sees human nature and understands human nature is through reading the Enlightenment tracks of John Locke and, and others uh, that describe it in, in positive terms. And he has a very positive upbringing himself, so he doesn't have anything to contradict with that. Whereas you have Alexander Hamilton, who's basic, who is an orphan basically at the age of 11 or 13, depending on, on which year you believe he was actually born, and who has to make it on his own. He's someone who lives amongst a, a slave-dependent uh, labor system. Uh, many of the tasks that he had to do when he was a, mer when he was a clerk in a merchant house was uh, negotiating the value of slaves and incoming goods and services. And so his understanding of human nature is, <clears throat> is very much based on real gritty experience. And so he believes that human beings are motivated primarily uh, by their own self-interest, greed, if you want to look at it in a negative sense. And so he wants to create, he doesn't believe in, in overthrowing all the old ways of doing things. He believes that those have a very useful function of restraining people from falling into the worst parts of their nature. Whereas Thomas Jefferson is someone who's reading of the enlightenment and his very theoretical understanding of human nature believes that most of the old ways of the past need to be abandoned so that people can be free to progress and perfect themselves. And he believes that once that happens, uh, there'll essentially be a, a, a millennial type situation where everyone's free and everyone's perfect and everyone's getting along with each other. And it'll be this age of golden harmony. And so that's kind of 
where the two men disagree, which leads Hamilton to favor more uh, aggressive government, energetic government measures that uh, were a government that's run by some of the elites, whereas Jefferson wants less government and people to be more free. What did Hamilton write about his feelings on the French Revolution? Yeah, he's very suspicious of the French Revolution from the start. One of his principal fears after the American Revolution ends is is bottling essentially the popular energies that had been released to win that revolution. He immediately favors restoring a lot of the property and the former rights of, of former loyalists, and he kind of wants things to go back to as they were. He, he doesn't want this to become a full-on destruction of everything that exists. And so when he sees the French Revolution happening, he he expresses a few notes of optimism, uh, but he is deeply suspicious that once the revolution starts to pick up momentum, that it's going to be this immovable force that people aren't going to be able to stop, and virtually everything that's good or bad is going to get destroyed. And so he's very suspicious of it from the start. And then, of course, when it does uh, start to turn into the reign of terror where the first leaders of the revolution become executed by the next leaders and so forth and so forth. He's basically at home saying, uh, I told you so. And he's also worried that, that as the political party system is starting in America, that that kind of mentality might cross its way back to the Atlantic. And so when he looks at Jefferson and the democratic Republicans, he refers to them as quote, our Jake Jacobins. Uh, because he's worried that they're trying to institute something similar to the chaos and anarchy and terror that's happening in the French Revolution. And so there's a very uh, paranoid, almost, uh, aspect to his, his criticism of the French Revolution. What was Hamilton's great hope for the future of this country? Yeah, he was a huge admirer of the British system, especially the British system of finance, where they could they had a lot of people who were invested in, in the British empire and the British success. And I think that what he saw for the United States or hope for the United States was something similar. One of the, one of the first things he does when he's treasury secretary is to write a plan to promote manufacturers and factories in the United States. And he really wants this new country to become an, an empire in its own where it's, it's turning out and it's using all of the raw goods and, and natural resources that it has, including the people themselves to become, uh, this commercial nation that's that's comes basically the the next British Empire, and so he wants a country. He see I think he sees the United States as a place that that will be a at one nation and that will be one of the great powers in the world. Your article is entitled Hamilton's Revenge. Uh, does he ever get his revenge, and if so, how? I believe he gets his revenge. Yeah, he. Uh, as soon as he leaves the Washington administration, he starts a personal spiral downwards, uh, and he he basically loses his better judgment. Once he's free from Washington, he becomes involved in a sex scandal and then writes a very public embarrassing account of it, and he's trying to manipulate John Adams' cabinet against him, and, and John Adams finally has enough of this and dismisses those cabinet ministers. And during the quasi-war with France, Alexander Hamilton is scheming his way to be the, the military leader, uh, the general of this army. And then when Adams achieves peace, he becomes furious at that and decides to publish a pamphlet uh, accusing Adams of, of all kinds of uh, personal uh, abuses, essentially. 
And he really basically torpedoes the Federalists' hopes of, of winning the election of 1800. Uh, and so they lose, and Jefferson becomes president. And the Federalist Party, after that point, as a political organization, is basically over. And during this time, he's also working himself against uh, his Aaron Burr, who's a rival in New York and who's someone he views as <clears throat> uh, unprincipled and a charlatan. And when he hears that Aaron Burr might be scheming with some New England Federalists, to create a separate confederacy, essentially. He calls him out in public, and that leads to Burr challenging him to a duel. And so by, 18, <clears throat> by the early 1800s, uh, Hamilton is, is murdered or killed in a, in a duel. And it seems, at least, that he's going to go into history as kind of a loser and someone who's a villain, uh, especially as Jefferson is very popular himself. Uh, but as soon as Jefferson starts to to leave office, a lot of the predictions that Hamilton had about America's future, the French Revolution start to come true. The French Revolution turns into a reign of terror, which then leads to a absolute ruler in the form of Napoleon Bonaparte, who isn't much different from the ancient regime before. Uh, Jefferson leaves office convinced that the succeeding generations coming after him and the founding generation are going to be better and wiser and and more scientifically perfect than the previous ones. And all of a sudden he sees these generations uh, being motivated by some of the same impulses that Alexander Hamilton said were permanent to human nature, greed, self-interest, and that kind of thing. And so Jefferson spends a lot of his last years pretty embittered about the course of American history, especially when uh, the Louisiana Purchase, which was maybe the seminal achievement of his presidency, leads not to an empire of liberty, as he predicts, but as leads to a succeeding decades of slavery crisis and slave states versus free states. And each time a new state wants to come in, it becomes this nearly nuclear political war between the two sides. And so by the time of the Civil War, when both Jefferson and Hamilton are dead, uh, it very much comes down to the question beneath everything is what kind of nation is America going to be? And the Northern vision of a industrial capitalistic uh, single nation wins out in the end. So I think that the vision that Hamilton had for America, even though he died long before he was able to see it, uh, ultimately prevails over the one that Jefferson had in his imagination. Jeff Smock, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>